Hello, and welcome to the second episode in the Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series on construction arbitration. My name is James Doe, and I'm the head of the Construction Disputes team in London. In this episode, we focus on key points to bear in mind when working with expert witnesses in construction arbitration proceedings. We discuss the types of experts usually involved with construction arbitrations and what they do, best practice in selecting experts, practical tips in getting the best out of your experts, and some highlights from recent guidelines relating to the effective case management techniques for construction arbitrations. Today, I'm joined by Karen Talwar, an associate in my team, and also Naomi Lindsney, a senior associate in our global arbitration team. Hello, and thanks for the introduction, James. Hello, everyone. Karen, what types of expert witnesses are typically involved in construction disputes, and what do they do? Sure. Thank you, James. The three main types of experts typically involved in construction disputes are delay experts, quantum experts, and technical experts. And as was mentioned in the first episode of this podcast series, their evidence is often central to the resolution of any construction case. Each of these three types of experts have different roles. Starting with technical experts, what types of issues do they deal with? Sure. Technical evidence is typically required in disputes involving claims relating to the defective design or performance of a plant or facility. This can cover a wide range of expertise from mechanical and electrical to process, civil engineering and structural. And you've had experience of instructing a technical expert in a really niche area. Indeed, I once had to instruct an expert on the performance of a relatively uncommon type of waste treatment plant which used a particular composting technology. It was in vogue for a very short period of time in the UK and was only deployed on a handful of projects before it was superseded by a more advanced technology. Once it became clear that technical expertise was needed, there was a race between the parties to find an expert with practical experience of the operation of these plants. In cases like that, where there may only be a handful of people with the right qualifications and experience to provide an expert opinion, you do need to move fast to make sure that the other side does not poach the best candidates. Strategically, identifying and talking to potential experts should often be one of the first things you do when a dispute arises, especially if the issues in dispute concern a very specialist field. And this is not always a straightforward task as you may need an expert with practical experience directly applicable to the project at hand. However, that won't be the case for all kinds of expert evidence. Quite. A good example would be delay experts. Disputes relating to project delays are perhaps the most common of all construction disputes. When work is delayed, the contractor might say that the delay was caused by employer risk events and claim extensions of time and or disruption and prolongation costs. The parties will then generally rely on delay experts to carry out an analysis of the delays for which the contractor is claiming relief and compensation. What delay experts typically do is to employ what are known as critical path method or CPM techniques alongside a forensic review of project documentation and other relevant data to assess the effects of delays and other events on the project schedule, ultimately to determine which party is responsible or liable for the delay. That doesn't necessarily require an in-depth understanding of the design or operation of the particular project. Rather, the expertise required lies more in the technique of testing the accuracy of the project program, identifying and understanding 
the relevant assumptions to be factored into the program and analyzing the impact of a particular delay on the program. What about quantum experts? They are also a common feature of construction arbitrations. Yes. Now, as with other types of disputes, quantum experts provide opinions on the financial consequences of the breaches claimed by the parties. But in the context of construction disputes, their processes can get particularly complicated. For example, the expert might need to quantify the damages claimed by an employer for a defective or incomplete project in circumstances where they will have no data from comparable projects to use as a benchmark. Quantum experts will also generally need to communicate with the other experts to understand the factors and assumptions to be fed into their calculations and will also need certain factual input from the client. That's a point worth making in respect of the experts across the different disciplines on a construction case, isn't it? The drafting of their respective reports will generally be an iterative process requiring input from the evidence of other experts as well as the factual witnesses. Coming back to the example of the quantification of damages claimed by an employer for an incomplete project, the quantum expert will need details of the availability and cost of manpower and how long it would in theory take the available labour force to complete the project. They'll also likely need to understand from any technical experts and factual witnesses any impact resulting from the interruption in the work, the changing contractor and so on. Yes, I think on complex construction projects it is particularly important in order to avoid significant delay and additional costs for the different expert work streams to be coordinated. From the factual investigation to the development of different expert reports and factual evidence and the legal submissions. Now we've looked at the types of experts typically involved in construction disputes and their roles, let's turn to selecting experts and getting the right experts. Yes, as we've just seen, for technical experts, it is particularly important that you find someone with not only the relevant professional qualifications, but also appropriate practical industry experience. Experienced tribunals nowadays can be quite intolerant of experts without the right experience and background. If a tribunal decides early on that your expert does not have the right experience to provide a credible opinion, it can be quite difficult to change that perception, and this can have serious consequences for your case. There have been some recent court cases in the UK that have highlighted this risk. Yes, there was an extreme example earlier this year. The Crown Prosecution Service brought claims relating to the carbon credit trade, which relied on expert evidence and it was revealed in the cross-examination of their expert witness that he had no relevant academic qualifications, had no training, did not have any peer-reviewed work, and had not attended any courses on carbon credit. That's quite an extreme example, isn't it? But it is helpful in highlighting why it's important to check your expert's credentials carefully, because they will often be subject to careful scrutiny, if not by the tribunal, then most likely by the opposing side. Okay. So having the relevant professional qualifications and practical industry experience is obviously key. But what else do we need to bear in mind when selecting an expert? Ideally, you want someone with prior experience of giving evidence in formal proceedings. Some experts might be technically sound and competent, even impressive, on paper, but then struggle to articulate their thoughts at a hearing, or will not perform well under the pressure of cross-examination. Cross-examination is a stressful experience and is certainly not for everyone. This is where prior experience showing an ability to hold one's own in a hearing setup is invaluable. 
This is one reason why it's really important to carry out preliminary interviews with potential experts, because that will give you a good sense early on as to how effective, or not as the case may be, that person might be as a witness. It should also give you a sense of the expert's ability to explain their evidence in plain English, which is also obviously preferable. If the tribunal doesn't understand your expert's evidence, there's a significant risk of it simply disregarding it. If an expert already has a good track record of writing concise yet credible expert reports, that's quite an advantage. Another point to note is that if a candidate has previously given evidence in court, it is worth checking if anything was said about them in any reported decisions. As we have discussed, courts in the UK are not shy to share their observations if they consider that an expert has not been up to scratch. Checking publications and reports of speaking engagements is also useful, not only to check whether the candidate has expressed any views which would conflict with the position they are taking in your dispute, but also to get a sense of their presentation and communication skills, and maybe even identify people who know and might be able to give you feedback on them. Indeed. Although sometimes, as in the case of the niche waste treatment expert I mentioned earlier, it can be quite difficult to get word-of-mouth recommendations to identify potential candidates in the first place, let alone obtain feedback. Expert directories and nominating bodies, such as the Academy of Experts and the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors can come in handy here. In summary, I think we can all agree that the time and effort spent in making inquiries, seeking recommendations, shortlisting CVs and interviewing experts are important and worthwhile. So now we've spoken about the types of experts and the selection of experts, we move on to the subject of working with experts and how that process can be managed efficiently. Naomi. A lot can be, and indeed has been, said on this topic, but we can certainly highlight some key practical points. As a starting point, engaging an expert early on makes good sense because you can get an early evaluation of the technical strengths and weaknesses of your case. This is obviously helpful in terms of shaping the overall strategy of the case going forward particularly where the dispute involves several potentially overlapping extension of time claims or other highly technical issues. We should maybe note here that the expert you engage early on does not necessarily have to go on to be your appointed expert who will produce an expert report and testify in the hearing. You might want to keep them as a shadow expert, working with you behind the scenes, and to appoint someone else as your independent expert, not least because it can be sometimes be very difficult for someone who has been working closely with you and the client from the outset to avoid being partisan. You should, however, consider taking precautions, such as ensuring your shadow experts' reports are protected by privilege so that they do not become disclosable later down the line. It's interesting that you mention experts not being partisan as, recently, expert evidence has come under increasing judicial scrutiny again. For example, in the 2018 High Court case of Imperial Chemical Industries Limited, or ICI, versus Merit Merrill Technology, the court was very critical of the preponderance of partisan experts called by ICI and stressed experts' duties in giving evidence. So what are the key takeaway points from this case in respect of expert evidence? Sure. The first takeaway point would be that expert opinions should not stray into matters of legal interpretation. The second would be that experts should not be taking strong positions without having a sufficiently confident grasp of the relevant underlying matters. ICI's quantum expert was criticized by the court on both counts. 
The court was similarly critical of one of the experts in the 2017 case of 125 OBS and Lendley's construction. The court noted that the expert in question was aware that some of the documentation he had relied on was fabricated, and that the documents as a whole on which he had commented extensively did not support his client's case. I think the takeaway from this is that while you obviously want your expert's evidence to support your case, in the long run you're better off ensuring that he or she has properly considered and addressed any weaknesses in your position, because simply ignoring them might undermine their credibility and result in them appearing partisan. Yes, and obviously this will be an iterative process, so a healthy dialogue should be maintained with the expert throughout, and with their views being challenged where appropriate. This might be a good time to retrace our steps and talk about the process of working with experts. Karen. Of course, thanks James. With any expert, it can be a good idea to invite him or her, after they have undertaken an initial review of the evidence and documents, to attend a teaching session. The teaching session can involve the client or legal team briefing the expert on the factual and technical background, and the expert raising preliminary queries. This can be a good way to set the scene for the expert to conduct his or her analysis. That will, of course, also be a good time to remind the expert of their duties as an independent expert and also to set some ground rules in terms of document management. Indeed, courts and tribunals are increasingly insisting that parties ensure that the experts on both sides have had access to the same material, which can be quite expensive and time-consuming if the relevant order is made after the expert has been engaged and has been receiving numerous documents for some time and a retrospective checking exercise then has to be carried out. Using data room technologies from the start to track exactly what documents have been provided to and accessed by the expert can make this process much easier. Moving on now to the final topic of this episode, namely procedural issues. Naomi, would you say there are particular procedural issues that arise in relation to experts in construction arbitrations? I think that the particularities of expert evidence in construction disputes have certainly led to certain practices and approaches being more developed in the construction industry than in other industries. For example? For example, in construction arbitrations, the experts are often required to meet their counterparts in each discipline before preparing their individual reports, which is otherwise pretty unusual in international arbitration. But having seen this on construction arbitrations, I can see why the approach makes good sense, for delay expert evidence in particular. How is that? Delay experts can avoid wasting a great deal of time and make their initial reports far shorter and more helpful by agreeing in advance on terminology and understanding what inputs and methodology the other side is going to be using. But surely that can apply to experts in other types of disputes as well? Indeed. But other industries have been far slower to adopt this approach. The construction industry, on the other hand, has a long history of using this approach. It was first tried and tested in the English Technology and Construction Court before being adopted in the CIAB, that is the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, protocol for the use of party-appointed experts in international arbitration back in 2007 and recommended by the ICC in its report on construction industry arbitrations. Well, it's good to hear that we as construction disputes lawyers are at the forefront in this area. Are there any other distinctive features of construction arbitration procedure which are worth noting? Not distinctive features per se, but it is worth highlighting that there is perhaps more industry-specific guidance on tools and techniques for the effective management of construction industry arbitrations. 
including the 2019 update to the ICC's 2001 report on construction industry arbitrations. I think that the ICC's focus on the construction sector reflects the fact that construction disputes are frequently more factually and technically complex and harder to conduct than other commercial disputes. Are there any new developments in this update? Well, I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that the 2019 update doesn't contain anything radically new or controversial. It's very much in line with other recent soft law guides as to how to reduce the time and costs involved in arbitration, including the 2019 CR guidelines for witness conferencing in international arbitration, and the Prague rules on the efficient conduct of proceedings in international arbitration, which were launched last December. Do these guidelines encourage parties to move away from party-appointed experts? The Prague rules do contemplate mostly tribunal-appointed experts paid for by the parties. However, the appointment of experts by the tribunal does not preclude the parties from having their own experts. It might be worth explaining here that the use of party-appointed experts, which we are more used to, follows the common law adversarial approach to evidence-taking whereas the Prague rules follow the civil law tradition in which the tribunal adopts a more proactive and inquisitorial role. What do the ICC's 2019 guidelines have to say about party-appointed experts? In general, like the other recent guidelines, they advocate a flexible use of the best-suited techniques and tools within the options available to be determined on a case-by-case basis. Like its 2001 report, the ICC's 2019 update does, however, emphasise that the parties should be clear on whether they wish to present evidence from experts at all, and that the tribunal must check the scope of the evidence in order to ensure that it is confined to the issues and does not deal with matters capable of being proved in other ways. Such as? Well, for example, in some cases, one of the members of the tribunal might be able to supplant the use of external experts. The ICC guidelines do, however, recognise the limits and dangers of a tribunal exercising such an expert function, noting, for example, that a tribunal should guard against affording an arbitrator with special qualifications excessive influence in discussions between its members. Is there anything else that you would like to add about the ICC's 2019 update? The ICC also had some interesting comments about expert conferencing, which was not considered in its 2001 report. Can you remind us all briefly what is meant by expert conferencing? Expert conferencing is where you have the experts presenting their evidence to the tribunal side by side, instead of there being consecutive cross-examination and re-examination of the experts by counsel. This can make it easier to compare deferring expert opinions on an issue, and for the expert witnesses to challenge each other's views with direct responses or rebuttals. One key benefit of expert conferencing is that an expert will likely be less willing to assert anything which their counterparty would be able to rebut immediately. And what does the ICC update say about expert conferencing? The ICC's 2019 update views expert conferencing as a useful tool, yet warns that careful consideration should be given to the existing evidence if such procedure is entirely to supplant cross-examination in a given case. So the ICC is cautious in recommending this approach? Yes, as is the CRB in its guidelines. As the CRB notes, the possible downsides of witness conferencing include that the quality of evidence may be affected and proceedings disrupted where witnesses are unfriendly, hostile or even rude to each other, or where one witness is more reticent about giving evidence in the presence of another. For example, due to deferring levels of experience in giving evidence, cultural factors 
or some pre-existing professional or personal relationship between them. Basically, the ICC and CIOB agree that the procedure to be adopted in taking expert evidence should depend on what the most efficient method of examination appears likely to be in the circumstances of each specific case. Thank you, Naomi and Karen. So, by way of a quick recap of this episode, we've looked at the types of experts usually involved with construction arbitrations and what they do. We've discussed why it is worth the time and effort of searching for and appointing a suitably qualified and experienced expert, and the need to identify the key qualifications and skills you'll be looking for. We've also covered some practical tips for working with your expert to get the strongest possible evidence from them, which include in particular making sure your expert does not come across as partisan. And finally, we've looked at some of the recent guidelines which reflect the increasing pressure that parties are likely to be facing from tribunals to justify the scope of the evidence that they wish to put forward and to show themselves willing to consider and adopt methods which are available to make the process as time and cost efficient as possible. If you have any feedback or comments on this episode, please do get in touch with Naomi, Karen or me, or your usual Herbert Smith Freehills contact. The next episode in this Construction Arbitration podcast series will be on documents and factual witnesses, and this will be hosted by Craig Tevendale and presented by Susan Field and Olivia Lang. Thank you for taking time to listen to this episode.